the pandemic finally in the rearview mirror, a lot of people are eager to put it behind us and just move on. But my guest on today's program says it's incredibly important that we take a look at the mistakes that were made and understand what went wrong. Joe Nocera is a veteran business journalist and a columnist at the Free Press. His latest book, co-authored with Vanity Fair's Bethany McLean, is The Big Fail, What the Pandemic Revealed About Who America Protects and Who It Leaves Behind. Joe Nocera is my guest today on Lean Out. Joe, welcome to Lean Out. Thank you for having me, Lean Out. <laughs> it's good to have you on. Uh, I was really, really interested to read your book. And in the introduction to The Big Fail, you write that even though, quote, most of us desperately want it all to be over, it's important to revisit the pandemic. Now, there is resistance in the public to relitigating these policy decisions. What convinced you and Vanity Fair's Bethany McLean that it was worth persevering and doing a deep dive into what went on? Well, there's several answers to that. You know, one of them is nobody else is doing it, you know? And it needs to be done. I mean, after after the financial crisis, after the Challenger explosion, heck, after the 1929 uh, market crash, there were hearings and, and there were commissions and there were efforts to get to the bottom of it and and find some root causes. And, and nobody's doing that. And so, you know, we sort of picked up that mantle. Uh, but the second reason is that it's not just a question of masks or no masks or lockdowns or no lockdowns or schools closings or no school closings. There are also systemic issues that go back 30 and 40 years in the nature of how American capitalism has changed and how certain sectors of the economy have become privatized. And we're thinking particularly of healthcare, I mean, hospitals and, and nursing homes and how those those changes, which are sort of unnoticed for so long, but you get and you wind up taking for granted, it's, it's worth reminding people it wasn't always like this. And that, you know, maybe we should rethink some of the changes that have taken place in American society and American capitalism. And I'm so glad that you started there today, because this is actually where I wanted to start as well, and that there are these problems in America and in Canada as well, before the pandemic that have shaped its response to COVID. Um, you go as far as to say that pretending that the U.S. could have done a better job is a dangerous fiction. So there are three big systemic issues that you tackle. I want to go through each briefly. Let's start with globalization. Sure. How did globalization leave America vulnerable to the pandemic? Well, uh, Americans love low prices and <laughs> prices are a lot lower if you can uh, have your goods manufactured in China or Mexico or Vietnam or Malaysia. And you would see sector after sector moving abroad. I think a lot of the anger in America right now is actually a product of globalization because so many people were thrown out of work and the elites didn't seem to care. But that's a whole other book. From for our book, it's one of the things that got outsourced was PPE, right? 
all the masks, they're made in China. All the nitro gloves, hugely important nitro gloves are made in Malaysia and Vietnam and China as well. And when the pandemic hit, it was a real wake-up call about how our desire for low prices and efficiency in the supply chain and so on had left us incredibly vulnerable to any kind of true emergency. So once the pandemic came, the Chinese were not going to send their masks to Cardinal Healthcare. They were going <laughs> to hold on to them for their own people. And who can blame them? And so we were caught flat-footed. And it showed that what was really missing in this whole exercise was any sense that we needed to have some resilience in our supply chains. Now, it started with PPE, but as you'll recall, towards the end of the pandemic, it started to move to other goods. You know, there was that, remember that, that cargo ship that got caught in the Suez Canal? That was costing $10 billion a day for the time that it was there. And then it, it had ship after ship after ship that was backed up miles. And then you got to this thing where ships would be in the Los Angeles, Port of Los Angeles and they couldn't dock because there weren't enough workers on the dock to take the goods in. And so they would be out there for months or at least weeks. And so you had this domino effect almost where you know, it started with PPE and then suddenly it's uh, silicon chips and, and it's this and it's that and, and, and autos. And you've got this realization that something needs to be done. Now, President Biden has certainly tried to talk to companies about manufacturing in America. And there's something to be said for that. But I think it needs to be attacked on a more global scale so that we're not just talking about one industry or one manufacturing plant, but we're talking about an entire system where you have globalization, but you also have the realization that we need to be able to make goods in our country. And you, you also, the second theme that you touch on is, is a kind of American obsession with the free market and with profit and with this idea that the free market can solve our problems in every instance. And as you write, the right choice for a patient, let alone a country, is not always the profitable one. Can, can you unpack that a little bit for us? Oh, absolutely. In the US, um, which I think is unlike Canada, hospitals and doctors get paid on the basis of, um, you get paid based on the treatments, not on whether you keep somebody healthy. So elective surgery will make you more money. Electrocardiogram will make you more money. Anything like that will make you more money. And, and the prices keep going up and up and up because the hospitals are, are publicly traded corporations that need to show Wall Street that they're more profitable every quarter and every year. So this is great if you're an investor in a hospital company, but it's terrible if you're a patient. And so in the U.S., we have these crazy things like something called surprise billing where you go to the hospital and you get uh, a treatment or surgery or whatever, and the insurance company will only pay X amount. And you think you're fine. You've been told you can leave. You don't have to pay anything as you're walking out of the hospital. And suddenly you get a bill for $50,000, $90,000. And you're expected to pay it. 
And private equity firms have have loved this because it it, it it adds to their profits. And in fact, when Congress has attempted to get rid of surprise billing, they have fought really, really hard to retain it. So the, the real issue here is that what helps the bottom line of the hospital doesn't necessarily help patient care. And there's a fundamental conflict between helping patients and making money. And you've just introduced the topic of private equity, which is which is the third theme that you, you touch on. This is something we covered on the podcast recently with Sarab Amari, the author of Tyranny, Inc., and with Canadian media historian Mark Edge, who looked at how private equity has damaged our media landscape. Walk us through how the rapid growth of private equity impacted America's pandemic response. Well, uh, uh, in so many ways. Private equity in the early 2000s you know, they're always looking around for what's the next thing? What's the next thing we can invest in? And they landed on nursing homes and they found ways to extract money from nursing homes. For instance, one of the first things they would do is they would sell the real estate underneath the, the nursing home to a real estate investment trust. So, so the nursing home, instead of owning this land, now has to pay rent on it. Millions of dollars in rent. So then they start, you know, adding these various outsourced, you know, if you want to get a, a pharmacy, they have an in-house one. If you need a doctor, you use theirs, you know, on and on and on. They're, they're constantly finding ways to extract money from the nursing home and the nursing home patients. And part of that requires them to cut staff and to cut necessities that the patients need. And this became widespread in the nursing home industry, even among many companies that didn't weren't owned by private equity, but private equity kind of led the way. So when the pandemic arrives, you know, you've got these staffers who were way overworked and they're trying to treat these patients who are getting sick. And I, I think it's fair to say that there's a lot of deaths that can be attributed to private equity owning nursing homes. They also, you know, they own something like 50% of the emergency room doctor practices. It's kind of rotating out of nursing homes now, and they're getting into something like autism practices. Now, you tell me what private equity can offer an autism practice. The only thing they can do is extract money. And I mean, my personal view is that private equity should be should be severely limited, but I'm not the king. I want to touch now on on lockdowns. Toronto had some of the longest lockdowns in the world. Um, as you point out in the book, this was unprecedented public policy. It was not evidence driven. And you wonder in the book if lockdowns could have happened without Zoom, which kept the laptop class, our class, working. And yet, as you note in the book, in 2020, more than 110,000 American restaurants closed. Meanwhile, the wealth of the top nine tech CEOs increased more than $360 billion. In Canada, the number of billionaires increased approximately 68% during the pandemic. How did lockdowns accelerate the economic inequality that we were already dealing with in North America? Well, what the Zoom class never really thought about was that people were required to work so that they could lock down. The so-called essential workers, you know. So if you're a meat packer, you're standing next to somebody cutting meat 
they may get it, be getting COVID. They may not know they have COVID yet. But the number of meat packers who wound up with COVID and even died of COVID is en enormous. And then you had, you know, FedEx drivers and, and Amazon warehouse workers. And some of them even told us for the book that, you know, we feel like we're being sacrificed so that other people can remain safe. So the inequality aspect, and, and the thing that amazed me really was that those of us who, who were lucky enough to be able to do that, who could work from home, who could use their computer, who could Zoom, who could buy our stuff and get it delivered by DoorDash or Amazon, so few of us really thought about the people who were making this possible. And you know, they thought they were doing something really virtuous for the country, and they weren't. They really weren't. Because the second aspect of it, which I think was kind of probably going to be your next question, is the lockdowns didn't make any difference. Walk us through your argument of why the lockdowns didn't make any difference. Well, first of all, there was no science showing that they would work before they were begun. None. I don't know how there would be, but there, but nobody had ever done that kind of study. So what happens is China does it, right? They lock up Wuhan and then they start to have good results. And then Italy does it and doesn't have good results at all. But basically, it was almost like it was a, it was a worldwide panic. Everybody like, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Well, oh, my God, we got to lock everybody down. We got to lock people down. We got to get people to stay in their home. Now, lockdowns absolutely have a purpose. Their purpose is to relieve some stress on hospitals that are about to be overwhelmed. But that is a short-term thing. That's like a month. That's five weeks, maybe. Other than that, lockdowns really serve no purpose. There's as much chance that You'll catch COVID going to the grocery store and you come back and you give it to your grandmother and she, you know, you're living in, this, in a, in a multi-generational household. But the real proof is when you compare lockdown states to non-lockdown states in the U.S. or lockdown countries to non-lockdown countries, i.e. Sweden, and you discover that, for instance, uh, the excess mortality rate in 20 and 21 combined in the U.S. is about 15%. In Great Britain, it's about 10%. And in Sweden, it's about 4%. So fewer people died overall in Sweden excessively than in the U.S. or Britain. Now, don't forget, excess death doesn't just count COVID deaths. It counts everything. So think about this. In a, people died of other things besides COVID during those years. COVID was not the only thing people died of. But if you were a cancer patient who couldn't get into the hospital because it was all about COVID patients, that was not a net plus for the public health system. And a lot of that sort of thing happened. People died because they couldn't get the the doctoring. They couldn't get they they couldn't get what they needed. And in addition, look what happened in China. They 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 had everybody locked down for two years. And then the, the population just absolutely revolted. They wouldn't take it anymore. And they let everybody out. And a million and a half people died in the next two weeks. I mean, in terms of criticizing lockdowns, I, I, I share a lot of your criticisms. But I do think it's worth raising the point of just how terrified decision makers were in that first year, how desperate they were to avoid the hospital system collapse. I was working at the CBC at that point, doing two stories a day. I interviewed a lot of these people. Is it fair for us to go back to that time and judge their decisions with the knowledge that we have now? No, it's not. 
And I would I would certainly say that anything public health people, whether in Canada or the U.S. did in March, April, May, June of 2020 is justified, is, is forgivable, is justified, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. People were scared. Nobody really knew what was going to work and what wasn't. Nobody. Uh, one of the things that that's important to realize is that the pandemic plan, at least in the U.S., the one that George W. Bush did and that Obama updated was based around influenza. Influenza kills children. So you get this new virus and you don't really know what it is. So you you act on the basis of influenza and you say, well, we got to close the schools. But by June or July of 2020, it was clear that the damage being done to children, it was two things were clear. The first one was that children were largely immune from the, the hospitalization and death of COVID. That even when it hit kids, it was either very mild or you didn't feel anything at all, asymptomatic. The second fact was that the damage being done to children because they were not in school was far greater than any harm from COVID. So by September 2020, public health officials should have been telling parents, we understand this better now. And we know that schools are safe and let's get everybody back in school. But they never did that because they were locked into this mindset. And in the U.S., even as they were telling people they didn't have to wear masks anymore, they were still saying five-year-olds had to wear masks. It was nuts. So the issue is not that everybody was panicked at the beginning. The issue is that as, as studies began to be made and knowledge began to be acquired, this was never properly conveyed to the public. And the public health departments didn't change their policies based on on information that was available to them. And I, I want to talk to you about the media's role in all of this in a moment. But but first, let's let's dig a little bit more into school closures. This is a huge issue in Canada. In Ontario, we had very long school closures. And the policy was really not debated in public in any meaningful way here and has really only started to be discussed when the New York Times started covering learning loss. You note in the book that some 3 million of the most educationally marginalized students in your country have been missing from school since the pandemic began. Extended school closures were never part of pandemic playbooks. Can you walk us through how this happened? Well, it may be different in Canada, but in the U.S., a lot of it was the result of uh, the power of teachers unions in the big cities. Uh, they're democratic. They are largely on the left. They hate Trump. You know, it's just the polarization of our society played into this because, you know, if Trump said we need to reopen the schools, which he did, the teachers union said, well, if Trump says we need to reopen the schools, then obviously we need to keep the schools closed because he would just as soon kill all our children. The teachers unions had a lot of power and they were afraid for their teachers, understandably. And they they completely ignored, everybody ignored the growing evidence that this was doing terrible damage to children. I mean, Alex McGillis in The New Yorker did a remarkable story about Baltimore and about what was happening to disadvantaged children in Baltimore because of school closures. And it was terrible. I mean, you couldn't read that story and say, boy, we got to find some other way. 
And the thing that was very clear from the beginning was that remote learning was a disaster. I had a son in fourth grade at the time in public school. And I mean, I felt bad. I mean, I felt terrible for him, but I really felt bad for his teacher too. She had a one-year-old and a three-year-old and she's trying to teach these kids. It couldn't be done. You know, so they wind up you wind up talking with her for half an hour and she gives you homework for the rest of the time. And it just it was it was an unworkable situation. But as I say, the teachers union, you know, they had they made all these demands about what has to happen to the buildings and this and that. And even even very late in the game, Chicago and San Francisco and a few other cities just did not just had to be pulled kicking and screaming to open the schools. Now, was that the only issue? No. But in my view, that was the that was a primary issue. A second secondary issue goes back to something I said before, which is that public health experts never came out and said, your child is safe. They just never did it. They always made this equivalence between a 70-year-old and a 10-year-old as if they could both have an equal chance of getting COVID. And that was just wrong. And it was a, a real disservice to the country. And it, I think the media has played a role in all of this as well. I'm quite critical of the media, despite being very much of it and in it. Um, and there was a couple of things going on during that time. There was the polarization, which you have talked about. There was also a sort of deferral to the expert class, to government, to to public health experts, to taking them at their word. But then there was this other thing happening as well, and that is some widespread censorship, which you touch on in the book. You spoke to Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, Stanford doctor, now involved in a high-profile lawsuit, uh, Missouri v. Biden, which will be heard by the Supreme Court. And the Twitter files reported by your colleagues at the Free Press revealed some of the censorship that took place on Twitter, including censorship of Bhattacharya. Given how many experts have been censored during the crisis, how can we get a clear and accurate picture of the true debates that were going on within science at that time? Well, that's the problem. There weren't true debates. There should have been. I mean, that that's how that's how science gets. That's how you figure things out. As you as you sit down and talk to these people, you don't say they're outliers and they they're they're they used to call Bhattacharya and Martin Koldorf, who's a Harvard epidemiologist who has done really important work for the CDC. Suddenly he's a fringe epidemiologist because he doesn't buy the conventional wisdom. They should have talked to these people. Look, I, I think the press is culpable because the press's job is to be skeptical. That's what we're supposed to do. That's what we're supposed to be good at. So, you know, if these guys are saying, you know, follow the science and the science is this and science is that, well, look up the science, find out what the science is, talk to the people who disagree with the science, bring their voices forward. Instead, it became this, it just became this, they just became part of the blue state, anything the public health expert says has got to be right, anything the other guys say has got to be wrong. They were all culpable, yes. And Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, they're in a somewhat tougher position just because they've been so criticized over the amount of misinformation from the, the, the 2016 and the 2020 presidential campaigns. So they were a little scared. So, you know, if the government said to them, this is misinformation, we got to get rid of it, they were going to be more than compliant. But there was no reason for the New York Times to be compliant or the Wall Street Journal to be compliant or, or the FT or, you know, USA Today. No reason at all. And as recently as last week, 
when Gavin Newsom and DeSantis had their debate, you could still see the same echoes. DeSantis said that Florida had a better death rate, a lower death rate than California did when you when you build in age, when you account for age, because there are so many more elderly people in Florida. And the Times, in their quote-unquote fact-checking of the debate, said, no, that's not true. California's better. But it is true. It's absolutely true. And there are studies in The Lancet that prove it. But they're just not willing to to say, hey, the bad guys, as we think of them, the bad guys are uh, some they got the, they got something right. I want to touch as well on the vaccines, a huge issue here in Canada because of our vaccine mandates. You and your co-author are champions of Operation Warp Speed and and the speed at which it developed the vaccines. But you do conclude in the book that the vaccines were oversold. You write that they prevented deaths and hospitalizations, but they did not stop infections or transmission, as many officials had initially promised they would, um, and that the vaccines are not without some adverse effects in some cases, including myocarditis. Um, I think this is a difficult issue to tackle journalistically, because on the one hand, these vaccines were developed quickly under enormous pressure with massive profit incentives. In my country, life was curtailed by vaccination status, which I think warrants an extra layer of skepticism from the press. On the other hand, uh, we do have to be mindful of rising vaccine skepticism, um, including some really out there claims that should be countered in the press. There is a risk, I think, of being wrong on this story. How do you think that through and navigate that complexity while writing about it? Well, I mean, we were lucky in that we were writing about it after after it was obvious what was going on, uh, after Omicron was proving that the vaccine did not stop transmission. What what we learned and what Jay Bacchataria, among others, was saying was when the vaccines were going through their phase three, nobody really was looking at transmission rate of transmission they didn't they didn't test for it at all they were testing for death and hospitalization and the mistake they made public health was in saying you know basically this is going to be the silver bullet instead of saying we haven't tested for transmission but this is really going to help you avoid death and hospitalization if they had just said that they would have had a lot more credibility because then, but then don't forget, you had this situation, I don't know what it was like in Canada, but in the U.S. where they shut down sports arenas because of transmission. Well, guess what? <laughs> transmission happened anyway. <laughs> you had to wear a mask in a restaurant for the same reason. You, had, you know, on and on and on, all these rules. There's no question that the vaccine also had side effects in some people. But guess what? All vaccines have side effects. The polio vaccine had side effects. And, and again, it's a thing where you have to be straight with people and you have to sort of say, this will have some side effects, that there are some people who will, who will come out with um, myocarditis. But then, you know, you have the anti-vaccine people. You're in Toronto, did you say? So you're near Buffalo. I'm sure you were watching the Buffalo Bills last year when they had that football game. And six minutes into the game, you know, one of the safeties for the for the Buffalo Bills dropped to the ground uh, with a heart attack and people thought he was going to die and they took him to the hospital. And, and immediately, 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 
The anti-vaccine people said, oh, well, it's obvious the vaccine did this. People didn't even know if the guy had been vaccinated. And he's, by the way, not the first football player in the history of the world to have a heart attack on the field. You know, but it, it, it became so. The real thing that I worry about is what happens the next time we need a vaccine for anything. And are we so are we at the point where people simply will not take vaccines or not have their kids take vaccines for like measles and mumps? Which, you know, now people do regularly when your kid is well, like one year, one, one year old. I also wanted to ask you um, just before we close and talk about lessons we need to learn before the next pandemic. I just wanted to touch briefly on a Q&A that you did in the New York Times with journalist David Wallace Wells. <laughs> that was a lot of pushback. Oh, he was just trying to take us down. You said in that Q&A that you felt like you were on the witness stand. If you can just comment, I mean, what was going on there? Why are things so heated within the media on pandemic topics? Well, again, David Wallace Wells, he's a super smart guy and he's done a lot of work and, I, you know, but Bethany and I are, are outliers. We're taking the position that, that, that Jay and Martin Kuldoff were heroes and he can't countenance that. I mean, look, Bethany and I, have been around for a long time. And every book we've ever done before has been reviewed. This book has not been reviewed in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, the FT, or the Washington Post. So, you know, David Wallace Wells was sort of a, all of a piece. I mean, he wanted to take us down because he wanted to, he wanted us to be perceived as, as charlatans, just the way he views uh, Martin Koldoff. It, it, I think it's made it very difficult for the public to get a clear sense of what went on. And I think it's made it difficult to understand the mistakes that were made in public health and government and media. And you have called for a bipartisan fact-finding commission in America. The British Medical Journal recently called for an independent inquiry into Canada's handling of the pandemic. But our liberal MPs sitting in our House of Commons Health Committee just rejected a public inquiry into federal pandemic management. But only a public inquiry would have the power to compel federal authorities to testify under oath and subpoena documents. What do Canadians lose and Americans, what do Americans lose as well by not having a national, bipartisan, fact-finding pandemic inquiry? You lose some truth. You know, if you could get 10 or 15 people who were able to put aside their preconceived views and look at all the studies and, and look at what happened and look at the way people acted. You know, one of the things people, one of the things that didn't get factored in is human behavior as they were setting these rules. How do humans behave? What can they handle? You know, China is the great example of that, obviously, because thought they had this great successful lockdown and then they discovered that people went crazy, that you just couldn't do it forever. It's not possible. As I like to say, people went to work during the Black Death. But you lose the chance for smart, nonpartisan people to say, you know, this worked and this didn't. You know, masks work, but only if you use a certain kind of mask or the school closings were really bad public policy and we really should think about hard about it the next time. You know, the, the, 
the commission after the financial crisis, I mean, they came up with a really good, sound report that wound up being incorporated in some of the laws that were passed in the U.S. after after the crisis. I don't know that you could pass laws, but you could. It could help you think about PPE. It could help you think about how people react. It can help you think about what kind of measures you really ought to think about taking. It could do all of those things. The main thing that public health needs to do the next time is be honest. Mm. Be, be humble and be honest. Admit what you know, but admit what you don't know. It would create so much more faith if, if you could say, look, we have this vaccine. We know it helps with death and hospitalization. We don't know what it does with transmission. We don't know. And we need to study it, but we also need to create policy that acknowledges what we don't know. I just think it would have created so much more credibility. One of the things Jay Bacheteria says about Sweden is that when Sweden got the vaccine, somewhere around 90% of the people of the population took it. He said, why is that? And the answer is because they believe in their government. They believe their government is telling them the truth. And that's now what's missing in the U.S. and maybe to some extent in Canada as well. What do we in the media need to do differently next time? I definitely think we need to be more skeptical, be less be less trusting of the quote unquote experts, be more willing to talk to the the other experts and not, you know, sneer at them as 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 uh, as fools and charlatans. I think that's the I, I think that's the biggest thing. Well, Joe, thank you so much for this conversation today. Thank you for the work that you and Bethany have done putting this book together, compiling it all into one place. It's such an interesting read. Thanks so much. Thank you very, very much. I so appreciate it. Lean Out is hosted by myself, Tara Henley. And this week's episode is produced by Harrison Lohman. If you value independent journalism, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com. You can also support our work by reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts.